This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Whakatane by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Kia ora, Sam. How's it going? It's going very well indeed. I am making progress on one of the papers that I'm writing. Fantastic. I am too. Actually, got all my bids in, feeling really good about the world. Good. Next hey, up is a, a... Next up's a book chapter. And then we've got a whole book to write about these conversations. (laughs) Indeed. And who are we introducing today? It is my great pleasure to introduce Louis Rawnsley. Louis is a musician, an artist with the coolest work, and uh, and a self-described unintentional activist. It's a great pleasure to share with you today. Louis, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Welcome, Louis. Where are you, Louis? I'm actually in Kawakawa Bay, which is sort of just about 45 minutes south of Auckland City. I always make a point of saying I'm not from Auckland if I go out of somewhere. It's not the most favourite city in the world, obviously. Because Auckland. So we've been asking people how their bubble life was, which is turning into history now. So how was your bubble life? No, it's been good because I'm pretty much in a bubble down here anyway, so it's I have a lot of things I work, I'm working on. I'm actually doing a book myself. You are? We should add that to the list of things. It was sort of like, and I've been doing illustrations. Your book looks more, your book looks more organised and further along than our book. Hey? Your book looks more further along the path than our book. Well, I, funnily enough, I've been working on this particular subject a long ever so went to South America in 1979. So I've had a great interest in it. It's a fascinating topic. So you were in Kawakawa during lockdown. How was that? Yeah, it was good. Fortunately, you... I I've been vaccinated. And so I don't know, something's worked. Because <laughs> I've had people around here and kids and I've played games chess with grandson and, and they've turned out they've had it. But somehow I've We've You're just able to been down to my partner's mother, who's 96. So I thought I'd better make sure I clear of it before I go down there. <laughs> that wouldn't be a nice to write in your resume. I <laughs> unintentionally, of course. Unintentionally, of course. I'm sure there's quite a lot of people who have thought that it would have to be unintentional killing of mother-in-laws. Yes. Oh, well, so. So, <laughs> so I don't know, Kawakawa. What's it like? It's good. It's, it's it's on the Thames Estuary. It never gets really rough out there. We're not open sea, but it's pretty rich fishing. It's got a very popular boat ramp up, so on the weekends it can get a bit. There's a beach to walk on? 
Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's very nice, actually. And so you said you were doing lots of things. What kind of things were you working on? Well, I've, I do a lot of stuff outside, gardening, building things. Although I've been having a little bit of trouble with the backs. I'm having to ease off. I think I'll get back to my book. Let's take the first of your music choices. We've had to convince you to play one of your own songs, but we've chosen, you've well, chosen, The Underdogs, All Your Love. Why this one? I, I just feel it's it's probably represents better what we were doing. We had a sort of pretty popular song, Sitting in the Rain, which is all right. As the years have gone by, it sounded less. Uh, <laughs> it's just I always hear the original when I hear it, and I don't think it really stacks up. <laughs>
many things that are interesting about you and I don't even actually know where to start. And so I'm, if I go back in time, let's start with music. How did you end up being a blues musician? Well, I started when I was 13, which is quite late really, I suppose. But I was just absolutely obsessed with it. I used to come home and just go straight into the shed down the back of the garden and just play, play, until my mother would shout out, you know, come up, your dinner's ready. And I'd scoff it down and just straight back down. I'd just play and play and play. And, so did, and how, did you, how did it come to be that you formed a band? Um, I used to go to school with the guy who was the drummer I was even in Primal One with them, and we ended up playing in the same band, The Underdogs. It's all right. Somebody just come in. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, yeah, so I just I just love playing guitar. I, when I started out, it was even pre-Beatles. You know, I used, I used to sneak down. My brother, my eldest brother, used to play. He used to like Cliff Richard, you know, all those great stuff and I used to sneak down I knew where he hid his key and I used to sneak down and borrow his records and take them up the house and I know so that's how I basically self-taught I've never been to a DJ ever but they're going who is (laughs) it's classic it's the Kiwi way isn't it that we teach ourselves how to do things exactly and you spend the rest of your life trying to undo these mistakes but you just learned (laughs) a certain way yep I guess the teacher would tell you straight away, don't do that. I had... Um, well, guitar was a really big thing when I first started because there was lots of instrumental hits, you know, in the late 50s, early 60s. Oh, early 60s. And so from from music, you your, did your art develop out of music or was art something that was developing no, along the same time? Art was something I always used to do before that. I used to, at uh, high school, I was top in art, but the teachers were, well, one of them was Don Binney. Oh. He was a great artist. He was a great artist, but he was a hopeless teacher. He just used to leave us. He just used to leave us. You'd see him through sitting out the back working. And another guy was Luca, Mr. Luca. He was great. He was always telling us how the school wouldn't give the funding and they didn't like art. I think he had quite an influence. He was probably an unattended activist as well. <laughs> it seems to be a, a theme that runs through education, um, that art is always underfunded. And I, and I think that most art teachers would tell you it's the same problem now. I know. I've read a lot. It's, it's always been like that all the way through. I feel sorry for guys like Vincent Van Gogh who wrote to his brother and said, I've finally found a solution of star painting, painting flowers. So people buy those. Of course, nobody's getting But nowadays, the price is embarrassing. <laughs> and the poor fella died without anything. <laughs> no, and he, he's not there. There were the exceptions, like Picasso was quite wealthy. But even Rembrandt, who was famous, he was broke in the end. We went and visited his house in Amsterdam. They've still got it set up exactly as it was when he was living there because he went bankrupt and they came through and itemised everything in his house and so they've been able to recreate. He's a great painter, but he's like a lot of people, like um, Mark Twain who came down here to New Zealand. The only reason he came here was broke. <laughs> 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 
And you even George, George Bernard Shaw, who came here in 34, 34, I think, and these people were saying in Auckland, should we invite him? He might say something there because he's just like, you couldn't, you couldn't control him. But he, he loved the Maori people. That is a good thing. Do you think that the internet is, has helped? Like if, you know, if we had had the internet back in the day when there were, when Picasso was trying to make a living and Rembrandt and all those incredibly clever masters, do you think it would have been as hard if the internet had been around then? I don't, I honestly don't think it would have made much difference. It's, it's like now when you talk about pollen and origins get so hostile about it. But I always noticed that people, the one people who, who always felt uncomfortable with that Taiwanese thing with Maori people, that someone had started something and inevitably some Maori come on, so, you know, and I thought, somebody's into it. And, and I'm, I'm sure that was with no knowledge, instinctively they felt it was, mm. which is what really driven me to. Mind you, going to Peru and stuff in the 90s, because, you know, Kuma and that. A guy actually told me I was served, usually in Peru, it's just potato and chicken or rice and chicken they eat. I always thought it'd be really great food. It's just terrible. <laughs> Although I do like potatoes. But it's not like, you know, Mexico or Peru. It's, they do have raw fish, which is quite nice. Supposedly they invented it, obviously. But that's their traditional dish, ceviche. Oh, I love ceviche. But, yes, I do and they have another one called escabiche, which is cooked fish. Similar, though. Do it's you funny because think... they don't have a lot of fish there, big fish. You know, they it's one of the richest fishing grounds in the world, but it's small because it's humble current. So they, they catch lots of sardines. To it, so, yeah. Do you think that um, going from your art through your music, which are all expressions of your of who you are and how you feel, is that what has driven your unintentional activism? Is that how you ended up being an unintentional activist? I suppose so. But music's a bit like art, you know. There, there's probably one in a million hits big. Most people, they're always broke. I've never known a wealthy musician. They just, it just doesn't happen. Because people think that, you know, you get paid a lot, but when you think of all the practice time and getting to the gig and setting up, God, a lot of work for a little reward, really. But arts are so I, I guess it could I probably, you know, I'd say definitely. <laughs> Nothing will turn you into an activist more than not being paid for what you do. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know any rich activist. I think, I think we're I all... There's <laughs> not a lot of money in that field either. Yeah. Yeah. There's looking, thinking about your activist practice, I've come across your name involved in water activism quite a few times. You've popped up in the water space. Oh, right. Well, there's a cousin of mine, Honor Edwards. He's, he's a really fantastic guy. He he leads the horror thing, but trying to practice French. And I found out he's actually related to me, even though there's no Maori in my family. My great-grandfather's eldest son married his grandmother. But anyway, we're sort of second cousins, which I was quite thrilled to find out. <laughs> so I always call him cousin, and he calls cousin. So, well, yeah. Well, yeah. And so I, that's... I worked it out. He, he must have the same amount of my great-grandfather's blood in him that I do coming down a slightly different line. It's interesting. 
It is. And there's a guy called Milan, Milan Ruka too, who's, he, he goes around all these waterways in a little canoe and reports farmers who are not fencing them. No doubt he's not too popular. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt he's not getting good for it. Yeah. And also, uh, also the condition of the activist, poor and unpopular. <laughs> That's exactly. the two conditions of activism. Exactly. And the better, you, the better you are at your job, the less you are, which is... Indeed. So your grandfather then, so you, you and your cousin both um, have, uh, have been important in activism in this country. Was he an activist? Is that where you inherited yeah, from? My great grandfather. Yeah, I must admit, when I found he was in the carry gun, I was a bit nervous about him. But he turns out he was definitely an activist. There's a photo I found just recently. They, they had a war up in Poroti, which was supposedly the last one where Iwi against Iwi. They they were fighting over the divisions of money. There's a photo of him standing outside his store with all these guys and cloaks and muskets and he was obviously on their side so I thought wow thank you. and also he had a, quite a few Dalmatians working we had 250 people working yeah. and apparently apparently in those days the Dalmatians who dig up they used to send all their money back to Yugoslavia and the New Zealand government started hunting down people who were employing them because they didn't want their money going back home mm. and when they came to interview and these government guys apparently said, I can't understand the word to say, which would have been a lie. <laughs> he, was, he was the first Pākehā guy that was in Tauranga, so he would have been fluent to rail. I, I often think, God, I wish I could have spoken to him, you know, but he died in 1930 and I was born in So I didn't really even know about it. My, great, uh, my uncle showed me a photo of a meeting they had He's an interesting guy by the sound of it. I only wish I could have met. It's funny when we look back and we look at these people who have been so influential on who we've become as people and, and we never have that opportunity. But the cool thing is that now with technology, those generations that come after you, your great-grandchildren, will be able to find out about you because yeah. there's stories about you. So lucky. And there's amazing amount of stuff about my great-grandfather too i couldn't believe going into these sites like papers past you know these early newspapers they had in the late 1800s they wrote about him quite a bit and i was relieved to find he was definitely on the right side like he never he, he released twenty-seven thousand acres of land of it, but he never bought anything when he go i don't know what happened to these but it didn't come down to me or our family <laughs> story of my life. <laughs> Mind you, there's a lot to be said for not having money because you don't have, you know who your real friends are because they're obviously not after you. It's <laughs> like I have these people ring up and say, your your credit card's been overdrawn. Well, I know it's a lie because at the start I don't have a credit card and I, ne I never whatever sum they say, I think, well, that's not me. $2,000, <laughs> I've never had that bloody much in account. <laughs> so it's quite good enough. So, you know, you definitely know who your friends are because usually the reason you acquire friends is they secretly come to deprive you of something. Well, Much better when you get deprived of some of your time. Definitely.
Yeah, because the first time I went overseas, it was 1971, I'd saved up $500, which I know it seems nothing now, but I went overseas for six months to India, went overland, went to Afghanistan, Iran, ended up in Europe. And I ran out of money and just as I was coming out, they stand more too. Mind you, it only cost $214 to them to Singapore. That was 14 days on board the Alonso. So it was pretty cheap, really. 14 days, and they have beautiful food on those peanuts. And then I went on the Rajula. It cost me $80 to get from Malaysia over to India. I think I was I was living for a dollar a day, believe it or not. You tell people that, they think, okay. You could get a hotel room for 50 cents. All you could eat, 12 cents. So you'd have your accommodation and meal sorted out, and you'd still have sort of, 14 cents, something to play around with. It was good. Pretty cheap place. Those were the days. You were in 90. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt you can do it now. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Lakin. Kia ora koutou. Nā mihi aroha nui ki a koutou koutou I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars and your beloved universes. I really hope wherever you are and whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and more each day who you are. A triumph of nature's art, perfect, unique and here, making things better. Thank you. Now I know that for us all the last more than two and a half years have been very challenging. There's been so many new ways of doing being seen feeling that we've had to adopt that we've had to adapt to that we've had to rise to the challenge of and I think we've all done very well I think we should feel very proud and I think we should recognize that this is an innate aspect of us as a species and indeed of all life to have this capacity to adapt to have this capacity to move and change as our environment does and it's important of course along the way to make sure we're sharing and supporting and caring for one another that we're approaching one another and ourselves with love and compassion that we're giving the empathy we're giving the understanding that we need in order to traverse these trials and tribulations I speak to you from Dalmore Heights in Pine Hill, Aughty Portis, Dunedin, my beautiful mansion, and it's absolutely bucketing down with rain. My poor hens are frolicking about, despite having a mansion of their own. They're frolicking about in the garden, getting very wet. They also have a forest, a mini forest that they can shelter in, but they're enjoying frolicking about in the rain and I just heard a beautiful bird singing an introduced bird but still very beautiful singing its own song and this is a wonderful thing that we have with life, the life that surrounds us will always surprise us and it will always inspire us if we allow it there's such a richness, there's such a depth to all life. 
And just as this bird outside has chosen to sing in the rain on a power line, so too we can choose to share our gifts, our strengths, our skills. And we can appreciate the skills, the strengths, the gifts of those around us. I'm very fortunate and I feel very blessed, of course, to work at Orokanui Eco Sanctuary, my heart's home workplace. But we have struggled in this time, having to reduce our hours and having lost funding. So I find myself really appreciating the support of those around me. And I hope for you, with all the troubles and the difficulties that this time has brought that you're feeling well supported I know that for us all this has been a tricky time and as much as we can to acknowledge the support and the love that's coming our way this is such an important thing to do and to give love and support to those around us that we care for something I love about us obviously as a species is that we are very innately nurturing we have a desire to care for one another we have a desire to care for the life that surrounds us we've domesticated and been domesticated by so many different species we've co-evolved with so many different life forms and with all life in an infinite way for quite some time now and this allows us that pleasure and that privilege to care, to feel love for different life forms. We're very lucky. So I really hope for you, whatever's happening around you, and wherever you are, that you're seeing opportunities for care and nurturance and appreciating the support that's coming your way. And I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much. Kaki you're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Louis Ronsley. Louis, in your music and in your art and in your activism, all of that requires a positive mindset. And even being an, an adventurer, like <laughs> I didn't know about your adventuring. That's so exciting. So you've got a really positive mindset. How did that develop in you? Where did it come from? I've no idea because... There were seven kids in our family, so it was a pretty big family. You certainly didn't leave any of your meal behind. You know, you used to eat whatever got put in front of you, ate it. So I don't know. I just, I, I guess, I don't know. I, actually, I don't know, because the first time I went away, I went by myself. So I was travelling through India and all that by myself. It was just Afghanistan and places. Pretty I get that does affect you a bit because India was used to see a lot of poor people, people sleeping in the street, even people dying in the street, you know, which is a bit of a sort of wake up call. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I guess I've always been like that. I've never really thought about it. I never even thought of myself as an activist till you, you said it. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose I have been, really, because I do seem to upset people with some, unintentionally. 
I'm, I'm not into being rude or calling people names. Because I, I know for a fact that is not a good idea. Your artwork, but I, but... your artwork is so beautiful and indifferent. And how is that? Is that always been your style, or is that a style that's developed over time? No, that's always been my style. I remember when I was at school, used that on the reports. His art is he's good at colours, but too realistic. <laughs> and I, I thought, too bad. That's just the way I. Just the way I. I I do it, so I do it. Yeah. And what's the inspiration for your art? Because from from my perspective, looking at it, it's really positive, happy settings. Like, it just feels happy. You know, well, the funny thing is, when I first started painting, the hardest thing was trying to think of, it was like Van Gogh, you know, trying to think of some subject that people like. But then people started actually asking me to do stuff, which I found better because you don't have to think about what you're going to do. They just send you an image and you do it. So most of the stuff I've done in the last four or five years have all been commissions, really. Not that I charge. I did, I did keep track of one painting, or oh, I used to when I first started to get some rough idea of what I should charge. And then I realized I was working for about $2 an hour. Then I gave up. I just, <laughs> so I said, well, I'll just paint. Don't try and work out what it should be charging. No, it's terrible. I don't think we actually talked about the water activism that you are doing. Was it the Paroti Springs? What's going on? Yeah, I think. I found out, well, there's a spring up in Porosi, which is a beautiful spring, it's beautiful fresh water. And these people just over the road, they bought this piece of land and they'd actually drilled that down and intercepted the water flow and they were trying to bottle it and sell it. So the local people, including my cousin and that, just are still trying to do it. I saw a photo of these just the other day down in Wellington, outside the High Court. Apparently, the the north, the northern, or you know, north, north northern council, they they're not the best. These obviously they're in the pay of somebody. Well, it seems to me, because I know we went up there and they had a march through Whangarei. And we walked to the council buildings and nobody would even come out and, and speak to them. It was pretty pretty sad, really, I thought. You'd think someone would have the guts to at least come out and say something. But no. And there was a lot of people there, about 250. Just terrible. What drives you in terms of like making a difference and, and wanting to change things? Well, at the moment, I'm I'm just I did I decided I saw a lot of right wing type people were using the internet as a sort of vehicle to get their ideas across, and I thought, oh, it's obviously working for them, so I'll try and work work it my way, you know, and it does seem to have had a response, but I I'm I think it's more important I do this book. What's the book called? 
Well, I don't have a title yet, but I was going to call it the rotating hook because I found out that's an amazing fish hook style they developed because when they used to make fish hooks out of more bone, obviously bone is not sharp enough to have a really fine hook, which is why all the Polynesians, once they found nails, were valuable. The reason why the, why they were so valuable because they found they could make them into fish hooks. Because if you're making shallow bone fish hooks, they yeah yeah they have to have a re, very efficient design or they just break. But they were amazing fishermen. I mean, just incredible. Well, you'd have to be, wouldn't you? Thousands of years living in the Pacific. If you didn't know how to fish, you'd be in trouble. Yeah. But I found said, some interesting stuff. What's that? When you said the rotating hook, I thought you said the rotating book. Because I've just read a book which yeah. is called Follow This Thread, a book to get, a maze book to get lost in. And it's got a red Ooh. thread runs through all the pages and it, they use right. that red thread to draw the pictures in the book. It's a book about the history of mazes. And to read the book, you've got yeah. to continually be turning it round and reorienting itself because on any given page, the writing's upside down or side by side, and sometimes you're turning the page backwards. And Yeah. One thing I found really interesting, there's a book called by Margaret Orbell called Hawaii and A New Tradition, I think it is. And she, instead of, one thing I really hate is when you're reading a book and it has a number, you know, and you have to go forward so many pages to find the reference and there it is. I thought either you use the reference as part of the text or what Margaret Orbell was doing, she had a big uh, border down one side and all the notes were actually on the page itself, which I thought was brilliant. I've never seen that before. I, I'm still tossing out whether I should use that. But it was just a thought. I don't want to flog your idea. I've never seen it before. It's a great idea. Because I, I hate when you're reading a text, you have to flick to the back and look up a special chapter and the number. It's confusing. And it breaks breaks the train you know, the idea you're trying to put across. But I've found a lot of the books have got such great titles, it's almost worth using them as part of the text because the title is so revealing, you know. Even the, you know, well, whatever. I like the illuminated manuscripts, the really old ones with, with the text and right. the images intertwined, but also the layering because there's, that's the main body of text. And then on the side, there's the, essentially the, the doodles that the, the, the scribes that were creating the book wrote. And then off to the side, in that kind of margin space, there is the, the, sort of the, the interpretation for the theological scholars about what it's talking about. And then written on top of that, there is the, the writing from the, from the priest saying, remember to tell the funny joke about the cow. And it's just all layers up. I love that, that notion of the layering. 
and it's just amazing when you look at those old ma illustrated manuscripts, you think it must have taken bloody years to put those together because they're all done by hand. Those elaborate bloody titles. And, hey, even the early printed ones, they were all drawn up by somebody. There must have been a big step forward when they started having linotype, you know, where you could set all the print in those early books, boy, they work. They, they just works apart, aren't they? So let's play the second of your music choices. Let's have Canned Heat on the road again. Why this one? I don't know. I think I, I've always liked Canned Heat because they, they had a guy who sang, who used to sing in a really high voice, which is a pretty unique voice. I've never heard anybody even now or you know, since the things like that. But they were definitely a blues book. Well, I saw that a crime, but I'm out on the road again. I'm on the road again. But I'm so tired of crying, but I'm out on the road again. I'm on the road again. I ain't got no woman just to call my special friend. You know, the first time I traveled out in the rain and snow, in the rain and snow. You know, the first time I traveled out in the rain and snow, in the rain and snow. I didn't have no pharaoh, not even no place to go. And my dear mother left me when I was quite young, when I was quite young. And my dear mother left me when I was quite young, when I was quite young. She said, Lord, have mercy on my wicked son.
Louis, we have seen lots of changes in the last couple of years of the, the pandemic. It's almost a year and a, two and a half years, isn't it? What do you think is going to stick? And perhaps more importantly, what do you hope will stick? Well, I hope the climate change thing is going to really stick because that's people have been talking about that for such a long time. And people, even the people who accept it, sort of say, yeah, but not now. I think definitely now's the time. Well, they're better. It's not so much me I'm worried about, it's the grandkids, eh? I mean, people say that. And no matter how we try to get out of it, we are responsible for the measure and really, aren't we? This, this idea that there's got to be constant growth, I think, is a bad idea. But mind you, I don't know what the solution to that is. Do you think we can take any lessons I, I from do. the pandemic? and the pandemic response for those bigger sorts of questions, things like climate change and social justice? I think so, because it's quite clear when humans feel threatened, they are prepared to respond immediately. But just I don't think people have really, the climate changing, I don't think they've really accepted it fully. But they were pretty quick to accept the COVID thing, weren't they? Because it was a very immediate threat. Somehow we've got to get across that... Yeah. Climate change and social injustice are just as immediate. Well, it looks like they are, as it turns out. Eh? They're always saying in 30 years' time or something, and that seems the last year because I'm a pretty keen gardener. And, boy, it's definitely warming up. There's no question. I don't know why. But there's weird things going on at the moment. Like I've, got, I've grown Coomera for 30 years, and they've still got them growing in the garden now. I mean, it's just unheard of. I've never known it to ever happen before. I mean, they're pretty sensitive to temperature change. Usually one really cold night and they're gone. Same with mosquito larvae. You know, they seem to be around. Never, it's all happening so quickly. I just hope we can respond equally quickly, really. Yeah, that's the thing. We, we tend to focus on the good things. Uh, yeah, it'll be a bit warmer. It'll mean we can grow these crops. But it's also going to take away the limiters on the on the pests. Exactly. I mean, that's the hope that we will be able to grow things, you know, bananas, which have been a bit blind. But there's a lot of other downsides. I think the plants are loving it, which is an upside because the extra CO2 and the extra warmth, they think it's fantastic. Not so good for us, but <laughs> we deserve it, really. I'm hoping that New Zealand or Aotearoa will be better than a lot of places. Pretty unique country. I mean, you, you know that when you travel overseas, you come back and suddenly think, it's amazing. No wonder be... they say it's green, but when you fly back home, it is green. Green everywhere. Even Australia, you go over there, it's most of it green, dry. I have some questions to end the show with. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? I think, well, my focus has really been on this thing with the origins, you know, because I think the whole, I just instinctively feel it, it's wrong what they're, what they're pushing on everybody. Because all the traditions, which I was going to put on this other side, if they early on, when they asked all the elders and stuff where they came from, they invariably said they came from the eastern direction of the rising sun. Now, I, I always thought they couldn't they couldn't confuse east with west. You just couldn't. Not not 
the school navigates things. God, they would have ended up God knows where. But they were just so onto it. So I don't feel they'd say that if that's not the case. Because they always said they brought the Kuma from Hawaii, which, which they always said was a mainland. I mean, you don't have to be a brain scientist to realise you can't come from some small island. They had to come somewhere, didn't they, first? I don't know. That's really been my main focus. I haven't really been looking for success. I've had heaps of people ask me to do murals and stuff down here in the bay, but it's just, yeah, I've done a few. <laughs> but I have other things. I, I'm I'm seriously thinking it's time to really get back into this book, even if I have to self-publish it initially. That's what I'll do because I've spent so many years researching stuff. It just it seems it would be wrong to just let it go. It's partly why I started pushing this stuff on these forums. But not ideal, but I started thinking, well, I have, I have actually been on various forums. There was about... Fifteen years ago, I was I was there was this um, scientific forum, and I got on there, and there was one guy that used to argue with me a lot, and I found out he was actually a linguist from Auckland University. I didn't know at the time, and he used to call me. He used to have a name for me. He was he was a bit of a name caller, so I started calling him a few things. Just so I, I said to him, I said, obviously that's how you like to do your communicate. And I'm pretty good at insults if I if if I'm invited to do so. He was a quite a well known linguist and written books and I just he just it didn't work. His arguments just didn't work. Like, you know, he's trying to say the language came from the West, but I said, How could it how could you have a glottal stop and call it waka, which is a name for a vessel, and they call it a bar? I say, Well you can't drop a letter unless it was there in the first place, like saying isn't, came before, is not. I mean, it just doesn't work. And also, I've traced a lot of words the other way. I firmly believe I used to get really angry at one stage. They'd keep coming up with all this stuff. And then I found they always responded virtually within days of any discovery that went against them. They'd have some guy that obviously just somebody and say, write some article. Because it reminds me a bit of the church and art, you know. All, all the art from the 17th century was pretty much religious stuff because the church had all the money and was giving out all the commission. So if you did a painting that didn't have a crucifix or something in the background, you probably have someone knocking the door, you know. Because even great guys like Rembrandt and all those guys, they well, he was a bit different because the Dutch broke away a bit being Protestant. We are writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. We really are writing this book, aren't we, Moira? This is our team of people doing good work. So you are in that team. What's your superpower? Thank you. I'm, I'm trying to do the best I can. If there's any superpowers, just I, I firmly believe the truth always comes out. You can that old saying you pull all of the people some of the time and you pull some of the people, you know, all of the time or whatever it is, but in the end you can't pull everybody all and I, I believe that. I think the truth always comes out. It might take a while, but it's out. So that's my if there's any power that I rely on to try and 
push the literature. What motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, I think the fact that I'm obviously running out of time is, is a great incentivizer to get up and do things as much as possible. Not like when I was young and I had to lie and sleep into all. Mind you, playing late at night. I used to always be a night owl, but now I, I get up early from work. I go to bed. I used to have a neighbor and I used to come home and be half past eight or nine years light out. God, just from now I know. <laughs> so, what challenge are you looking forward to in the next year or so? Well, I, I, I think I'd like to get this book out one way or another. Because the internet's all very well, but it's, it's a bit, it's not really. There's too many people to just push the thing. But if you have a book, although I'm a bit dubious of books, but I think this, I think illustrating it is quite an interesting. Because I must admit, I always like books that add pictures. You know, I don't know why. There's somehow, it, nowadays it's not so, you know, there was a day, time where you saw a photo and you think, Nowadays, you should, has that been Photoshop? You didn't have to watch. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? I think basically just do what you know is right to do. And often you, you have people trying to tell you otherwise. Just think, yeah. Sound advice. It's, it certainly helps being involved in professions that have no monetary rule. That, that helps. Thank you for that. Mawira. Louis, um, thank you for your art, uh, for the for the music and for the painting and for uh, giving your time and energy to make the world a better place for other people. That has got to be the greatest gift of all. So I just want to say thank you and thank you for sharing your adventures with us today. It's been a real pleasure to get to talk to you and, uh, oh, and we you. wish you well with the publishing of your book and I cannot wait, actually. It'll be awesome to read. Thanks for joining yeah. us. I'm going to go out to, or we'll play some world music to go out to. You got any particular song and a favourite song? God, I've got so many CDs in here. <laughs> I love reggae, but because it's a magical style. I was just talking about it the other day to a guy. It's it's one of the only unique music styles that's come out recently in the last twenty years, and it all involves beautifully the dropping the one, the first beat. Because, you know, Bob Marley always used to say one-drop music. And I, I, I never fully understood what he meant. Then I suddenly realised. Because all Western music, rock and roll, the accent always comes on the one, three, or one. But he, he just, they just came up with a great idea. Just drop the one totally. Yeah. It's why Reagan has that lilting feel. Sounds unusual, but it's a genius idea. All right.
been listening to Blowing Bubbles, conversations of people who blow bubbles their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We're broadcast on Otago Access Radio every Monday, Wednesday and Friday afternoons at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, with Mawera Karatai in Fakatani, and we have been joined from Kawakawa Bay by Louis Rawnsley. That was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show. Matiwa. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.